Welcome to Out of the Lab, a podcast interviewing entrepreneurs who've taken research out of the lab and built it into a company that's serving the world. These entrepreneurs are heroes, and the planet needs more of them. So tune in, learn from their successes and failures, and get inspired. Visit Bountiful.org to join our community and realize your power to save the world. Hello and welcome to Out of the Lab. I'm your host, Max Finder. Today's guest is Merdad Mahoutian. He's a PhD, an award-winning scholar, entrepreneur, and co-founder of Carbocrete. He invented Carbocrete's technology, and he is now their CTO. Um, It's an exciting carbon capture and concrete production technology that gets rid of cement, which is one of the biggest emitters, and it's actually a carbon-negative process the way that they do it because they also inject CO2 into the into the concrete. You can hear more about his technology, but also really how he invented this thing as part of his PhD research and how it went, the entire trajectory of inventing it, working with his advisor to figure out if it's novel, working with the technology transfer office to patent it. They introduced him to his co-founder who, uh, who was a successful entrepreneur and how he leveraged non-diluted funding. Um, Merdad is extremely impressive. He, they, they, Carbocrete was just one of the finalists in, in the $20 million Carbon X Prize. He's published more than 50 peer-reviewed journal papers and conference papers. He has seven granted and pending patents to his name. He's been cited in 600 papers and reports. The audio is a little uh, rough in this one because he's calling from his R&D lab and it's concrete, so you know things are a little bit loud. Um, but the content is definitely well worth it, especially for the story of how he got lucky in his PhD research and how that led to the breakthrough that became Carbocrete. So tune in, enjoy, visit Bountiful.work for more, and uh, listen to the episode. Thanks. Merdad, thanks for joining us. Hi, Max. Good to be here with you. Um, so to get started, I would love to hear you describe the Carbocrete technology um, at a high level, but you know, our, our listeners are a lot of uh, researchers and grad students in hard sciences, so they'll be uh, able to understand it uh, reasonably well, but maybe you could tell us a bit about the, the Carbocrete technology. Sure. Uh, just a bit of background before I talk about Carbocrete technology, basically. Um, as you may know, concrete uh, made with cements and aggregates. Cement and aggregates are the main ingredients of uh, concrete, uh, concrete, basically. So what's the problem? The problem is with cements, not the concrete. Cements account about 8% of total CO2 emissions around the world. So imagine for production of one ton of cement, one ton of CO2, almost one ton of CO2 gets emitted into the atmosphere. So you can imagine how dirty and polluted this industry is. And this cement is used uh, to produce concrete. So what we do here at Carbocrete, we are developing cement-free concrete. So we no longer uh, use cement to produce concrete. Instead, we are using byproducts material. Uh, and in our process of making cement-free concrete, also we are 
activating and curing our concrete with carbon dioxide. So as a result, our concrete uh, also absorb and sequestrate uh, some CO2. Uh, and imagine since concrete uh, consumption in the world uh, is, is significant basically. So I guess based on the last uh, statistic and last number, each person in the world consumes about one ton of concrete worldwide. So you can imagine how many tons of uh, concrete are uh, used and produced basically every year. And for that reason, if we can reduce uh, the concrete consumption based on the traditional con concrete consumption and use new technologies like pyrocrete technology, we are able to reduce the carbon footprint, we can, re we can reduce the uh, CO2 emission associated with the cement and concrete production. And this... Uh, if I want to... Uh, if I want to... Sorry for interruption, Max. If I want to give you some more details on uh, our technology. So, as I mentioned, so we are not using cement, which is cement, you know, we can say that that's a troublemaker material. So, we are not using cement and we are using byproducts of uh, other industries. In our case, in our technology, we are using steel slag, which is byproduct of steel uh, manufacturing plants. So in a, imagine in a steel uh, factory, so the main goal is to produce steel. So steel is the main uh, products over there, but as a result of the production, uh, they are producing and generating some byproducts, uh, which they call it the steel slag. So in our process and in our technology, we use these steel slag. Uh, we do some process on the steel slag and we use it as the main binder for production of concrete. Excellent. And and before we get into the origin of all of this, I mean, I, there are, there are a few other major uh, initiatives to try to improve concrete and cement. I mean, things like Carbon Cure, which I know is also in Canada where you're based. Could you talk about some of the differences with some of those other leaders that, for instance, just won the X Prize and, and how Carbocrete is different or maybe you're the same? Yeah, so as I mentioned, since concrete is a huge issue regarding to the pollution and um, CO2 impact, so they has, I mean, in the past 20, 30 years, basically, uh, lots of researchers, lots of studies, lots of uh, universities try to solve the issue or try to at least reduce the CO2 footprints of concrete. So they started, let's say, with uh, making it better cement, less uh, polluted cement, or let's say, let's say cleaner cement, basically. So they try to use, let's say, um, a better fuel, cleaner fuel, uh, using, uh, uh, let's say, uh, some sort of clean energies in order to produce cement. This is one of the ways that uh, they try to, let's say, uh, produce concrete with a lower CO2 footprint. Then another uh, categories and another avenues to reduce the CO2 footprint of concrete was to reduce the cement consumption in concrete. For that reason, uh, another categories uh, basically started with when, when, when the concrete manufacturers, they tried to use uh, cementitious material, uh, which are not cement, but has some cementitious properties. So they call it supplementary cementitious material. Like silica film, like metacaoline, like fly ash. So let's say instead of, let's say, i just give you an example. Let's say instead of using 100 kilograms of cement, so you are now able to use 75 
kilogram of cement and use 25 kilogram of, let's say, flyer. So you're able to use less cement and less cement means uh, less CO2 footprint. So these efforts have been done again in the past uh, 20, 30 years, basically to uh, reduce this carbon footprint. And recently, uh, so you talk about the Carbon X Prize and another uh, company in Canada, basically. So uh, there are uh, more interest in using CO2 in concrete. Uh, so most, I would say that all of those companies and all of those technologies still are using uh, cement. They are still using Portland cement plus CO2. Uh, and that's the main difference from, let's say, carbon cure technology and you talk about the carbon cure, basically. So um, in, those, in, in that technology, in carbon cure technology, for instance, um, they are using cement, Portland cement. And in their process, they are also using CO2, same as, which is the same as us. But the main difference, which is a very huge difference here, is that uh, we are not using cement. We are using no cement at all, cement-free concrete. This is what the uh, carbocrete does, basically. And that's a huge uh, difference between uh, these two technologies. And as a result, basically, so imagine that we are not using cement. We are capturing lots of CO2 in concrete. And as a result, our concrete, the final product, is a carbon-negative uh, product, basically, uh, which, is, which is great. So, uh, life cycle analysis has been done. Uh, and imagine that when you are doing life cycle analysis, you are dealing from the start to the end, basically, from extract, from getting the material, raw materials, processing the raw materials, production of concrete, and at the end, uh, at the end of the life, uh, life cycle, basically. So you, you consider all of these parameters and all of those factors, and uh, it has been done. And uh, analysis uh, showed that our concrete, our concrete products are carbon negative, which is, uh, which is a very significant uh, benefit of our product, basically. And you're counting on steel slag as the input to, to like steel production will not change anytime soon and so you'll have that input and continue to add value to the environment by removing that as a as a byproduct um exactly from the steel process yeah exactly so since we are using the byproduct of a steel manufacturing again and that's that's you know construction is happening everywhere around the world and uh, construction needs steel. Construction, car manufacturing, and all of those, you know, other, other uh, industries. So the demand for a steel is there and it's going to grow. So there are some estimation that, you know, it's going to grow uh, almost every day or every five days. So definitely steel production is not going to stop. And as a result, we will get access to steel slag, which is a byproduct of a steel manufacturer. And, and again, if I just want to wrap up basically the, the benefits or environmental benefits of our process and our technology, carbocrete technology, is that uh, first we are not using cement, which is a uh, very energy intensive and very intensive CO2 footprint material. So we are not using cement at all. That's one uh, main environmental benefit of our technology. The second is that we are uh, permanently capture and sequestrate CO2 in our concrete. So 
So that's, that's also the great environmental uh, benefits of our process. So we capture CO2 inside our concrete basically. So we convert the gas into some solid and it stays in concrete uh, basically forever. Uh, that's the second benefits of our process. And uh, the third benefits of our technology is that uh, we are using byproducts of other industries. So imagine instead of uh, putting those byproducts into the landfills um, and uh, make the land, make, make more landfill every year and every year and every year, uh, we use those landfills, we use those byproducts, we reduce the size of the landfills, we eliminate those landfills, and basically for that reason, we also uh, contributing to the uh, environmental uh, environment, environment, basically. And, and honestly, I'm talking about CO2 a lot, but uh, just don't forget that when cement is produced, Definitely it emits lots of CO2. As I mentioned, one ton CO2 per one ton of cement. But in addition to, to this uh, CO2 emissions, uh, you have to consider the amount of raw materials and natural resources that are used to produce cement. Uh, so for producing cement, you need limestone, you have to dig limestone, you have to dig clay, you have to use the clay. And all of these, all of these materials are <clears throat> natural resources for us. Basically. So uh, when you are producing cement, you have to use all of those materials. You are going to emit CO2, which is not good basically. So by avoiding using CO cement, basically you are avoiding emitting CO2 and also you are avoiding uh, using natural resources. And so was this avoidance of natural resources, the idea of using CO2, and even using the steel slag as a, as the one of the inputs, um, instead of cement, I mean, was that the goal when you invented it? And, and maybe this is a nice segue into talking about how you came up with the technology and, and, and the process of inventing this. Um, let's talk. Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure, Max. Um, yeah, I mean, I started, uh, my PhD program in 2011 at McGill University in Canada. Uh, at the time, I was looking for uh, any material, specifically byproduct material or any waste material uh, that captures CO2 and at the same time it gains strength. Because honestly, uh, when I started, already there were some. Uh, known material that could use could be used for capturing CO2, like uh, olivine, let's say. So there are some uh, minerals called olivine, and they are reacting with CO2, and they can use they can be used uh, for capturing CO2. Uh, but since my background is civil engineering and structural engineering, uh, my goal was to find a material that captures CO2 and at the same time can be used uh, in construction. Uh, materials basically. So just capturing was not enough for me. I was looking for some strength development and some uh, mechanical uh, performances basically. So was this part of your PhD or was it just a, a question and a prompt that you started investigating on your own? No, no, that was the base, basic. That was the, that was the, my main goal basic uh, goal of the project, basically. 
it was the main uh, it was the main task for me basically to find out uh, what material is good and then investigate it and then find out the mechanism find out how it happens and find out uh, how the reaction happens and all of those things what phase how the chemistry affects the result how the strength is developed basically so that was the that was my my research basically to, to find out all of to answer to all of those questions how the reaction happens how the strength is developed what phases are consumed in the slag what phases are let's say generated as a result of the reaction so these are all what i had to to answer during my phd program but the 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 combination of of inputs that you have in this process i mean this was a thesis that you had or you had undertaken some kind of search to try to find out the ideal inputs for this if that makes sense uh, i searched basically i mean yeah well i searched basically i tried different materials uh, i tried uh, different byproduct materials specifically i tried fly ash let's say i tried iron slag i tried wood ash i tried silica fume and definitely i tried steel slag to see basically which one is going to be a good candidate uh, for the reaction and for uh, for for being used as a construction uh, material basically so i tried all of those materials and uh, figured out that okay steel slag seems uh, working it's a good one and uh, based on that, I spend more time to evaluate uh, the performances, the characteristics of a steel slag, the characteristics of the carbonated steel slag, and all of those things. And and so once you settled on steel slag, I mean, or, or or I guess after that, I mean, when did it start to feel like a company? I mean, when did you start to feel to do these? Uh, techno-economic analyses that would would help you figure out you know that that it's a that's an excellent input that all of the different parameters that made this feel like something that could be its own company yeah uh, well i mean maybe it was my in my second year perhaps so again i tried different material on steel slag and then uh, i did not get good results from steel slag and uh, honestly it made me a bit nervous because you know you are almost in the middle of your program and then basically no good result at all basically and imagine all of those uh, issues and all of those bad results and then suddenly one of our equipments broke basically at mcgill university i mean imagine we had enough problem now another problem popped up and it made me very upset and uh, made me even more nervous, basically. So I had to find out another third-party lab, basically, to do, the, to, the, to do the process for us, basically, because no longer I could use that equipment at McGill. So I did some search and research, and then I found out that there is a lab, uh, is a private lab uh, in Ontario, in Canada, uh, that uh, they can do that process for us. Uh, so it took two, three weeks basically for the communication, uh, contract and all of those things. And imagine at that time I was very nervous, 
how come it broke at this time? Why I'm not lucky? Why it broke now? Basically, and all of those complaints and all of those uh, stuff. This this is rock bottom for a researcher. Yeah, yeah, true. That's true. But but honestly, when you are in the middle of research, you you, you want everything to work as much as possible, basically. And all of those drawbacks, all of those uh, hiccup, basically, you know, is you are not uh, you are not looking forward to see those hiccups uh, when you are doing the research. Uh, and honestly, all of those hiccups. That is very typical. I agree with you. It's very typical, and it happens. But uh, it delays the, the the project. It delays your program. It delays your project. And uh, usually, as a researcher, honestly, you don't like those type of problems and hiccups. Uh, so I sent the material to that uh, third party lab, like a private lab in in Ontario. And after I don't know two three weeks, uh, they sent back the material. The same as steel slag that I was using, but they process it at uh, that third party lab. And then I suddenly I started uh, to get good results. And the same material that I use, the steel slag, I could not get good results, all low strengths, low CO2 activity, uh, low reaction rate, and all of those things. Suddenly, same material, same everything. Same process that basically we do, uh, I did at the, at the university. Then suddenly I started to receive and uh, obtain good results, basically. Uh, and it was very surprising. I, mean, I was happy for sure because finally some good results popped up and some good results were generated. Uh, I mean, in the first few days, basically, or weeks, I was a bit surprised and I was not sure how come, you know, I mean, everything is the same, same material, same slag. Same, same everything. Then how come now some something is working now? And then just notice that because we use a different, uh, let's say, grinding equipment, different equipment uh, here at McGill versus uh, the third-party private lab, are using different equipments. So those guys they were able to grind and grind uh, grind the slag better, basically, compared to ours. And they were able to make it finer, let's say. And for that reason, uh, finer slag means higher reaction rate, higher carbon activity, and all of those things. At the time, 2000, I guess it was 2012, I guess. I was not aware of the, the fact that the yes, size of the slag, size of the fineness, uh, has an impact on the activity. Uh, and it influences the size of the slag, influences and affects uh, the reaction rate affects the strengths development and all of those things. And it, it was a very good accident that uh, our machine and our equipment broke uh, because, you know, I noticed that, oh, yeah, so size is important here. We are talking about the size of the slag. And for that reason, uh, that was a very good, again, that's a very good coincidence, very good accident. So, okay, then everything has started to work from that point, basically. So uh, I started with, let's say, making small two by two by two centimeter samples. And then since we got good results, then I started making a bigger sample, 10 centimeters by seven centimeters, again, good results. And then uh, we moved on and make a bigger uh, sample. So eventually after, it was my third year, I believe, 2013, uh, uh, try to answer your question from what point and from what uh, time, at what time basically we 
noticed that yes, there is some some hope and some chance that we can uh, start a company. So I guess it was in 2013 that you know uh, good results. So we had made I had made some concrete samples, good compressive strengths, good performances, and uh, the samples basically captured some CO2. No cement at all, cement-free samples. And it was in 2013, I guess, uh, I discussed with my former supervisor, uh, Professor uh, Yishin Shao. And then we said that, you know, it's a very great story. You know, we are, we are able to make a concrete without cement, uh, with a good performance, with good mechanical properties, with good durability properties. At the same time, uh, this concrete absorbs CO2. And we said, okay, you know, it, it has a chance of commercialization. It has a chance to be brought to the industry. I mean, definitely at the time, uh, I didn't have that much of knowledge about the, let's say the cost, the economic of this one, uh, the market, how much steel slag available around the world, uh, how much is going to cost, CapEx, OPEX, and all of those things. So definitely at the time I was focusing on the technology and and the science behind it, basically. Uh, but that was a trigger time. I mean, triggering time at the time, 2013, perhaps. You know, we saw the we saw the the hope and we saw the the potential that this technology can be uh, presented to the industry. And uh, at that time, uh, we said, okay, that's a new stuff. That's a new technology. Let's uh, protect the idea. And. Uh, for that reason, basically, we notified McGill, McGill University, to say that okay, yeah, you know, we submitted the ROI report of innovation. Uh, we came up with this technology, we came up with this uh, innovation, and uh, we believe interesting technology. And after several meetings with, uh, with the McGill officials, basically, we presented to them. We tried to show them that this is an interesting technology, it's working, it's feasible. Uh, McGill agreed to support uh, the patent application and basically pay the fees and all of the application fees and all of the legal fees associated with the patent application. So we submitted the patent application, uh, we protected the patent application, I guess starting it was in 2014, I believe. And uh, so the patent application was submitted. Uh, so we were sure that uh, the idea is protected. And I guess it was in 2015, uh, early 2015, February 2015, that uh, the Office of Sponsored Research at McGill University. So that office uh, introduced uh, me and my supervisor, my former supervisor, with uh, a business person, basically, a successful business person. Uh, and it was in 2015 that for the first time I met uh, with my business partner, Chris, Chris Stern. And uh, I presented the idea, I presented the technology, and then uh, he liked the technology. Again, it seems very, at the time, it seems very interesting because, you know, I mean, you're making cement-free concrete. Uh, with the same and better performance than normal concrete, average concrete, and at the same time we capture CO2. So it's all good stuff. No brainer that is a, is a you know it, it is uh, technology is a very 
interesting and promising technology. Uh, so, and it was again, it was in 2015, and then we said, okay, you know, we have to start a company, we have to start a startup uh, to work on it, and then it takes a few months basically to figure out the best approach to start a company and all of those things to, uh, you know, to work on the mechanics of it, basically, how to start a company and then uh, how to do it, uh, the paperwork and all of those, all of those things. And it was in uh, July 2016, uh, Chris and I, as co-founder of Carbocrete, basically, started uh, Carbocrete. I just want to say I love the story about how it was an accident that they were grind that the other lab that the McGill the McGill equipment broke and you had to send the material yeah. to another lab and they ground it differently and that made all of your uh results yeah yeah better yeah, I mean, it, you was, it was like yeah as i mentioned yeah you are right max i mean it was a, again it was a bad accident maybe again if it, if the mcgill equipment was keep work was keep keeping working unless maybe i couldn't get to that to this level that i am now it's really unbelievable and one of those happy you know like you guys are working hard you've been at this eight years already nine years i guess and i'm sure it'll be a, another number of years as you start to get more and more success and grow bigger and bigger but it's one of those things where you thank your team you thank all the hard work that everybody did but and, and with a bit of luck i mean it, that piece of luck right there is just unbelievable and it, it's really i think we're all going to be grateful that it happened. Um, and so when you brought this to your advisor and he said, you know, let's protect this. I mean, what, what was it, it, what was it about that, the invention that felt, I mean, it felt very novel and, and your advisor has a bunch of experience with this. And so he kind of said, this is some, we have something here. Is that kind of the, the vibe that there was at the time? Yes, basically. Yeah. So, I mean, Again, I mean, you could find some papers or some published report or some patents on, you know, again, reducing the cement consumption. But uh, making concrete without cement, 100% with other binders, uh, you, could, you, could, you couldn't find that much of technologies. And imagine that in our process, again, since the technology involved activation of a slag with carbon dioxide, uh, that was something new, basically. That was, we felt that me and my supervisor felt that, you know, that's something that we have not heard about it. It seems uh, very novel, obvious, and uh, it's patentable basically. Uh, so I guess, again, as you mentioned that my supervisor had, uh, at, this, at this time he had 25, 30 years of experience uh, in concrete and concrete technology. So definitely he knew that that's, uh, that's something new, that's something, uh, has the chance of uh, being patented, patented basically. So, and then we didn't stop there basically. So, because again, as I mentioned earlier, so we presented the case to, to McGill and McGill in order to invest uh, on that uh, idea and on that technology, uh, they had to do their due diligence and they did it basically. So they asked uh, the, the, the McGill's library. I mean, there are some few people that are working uh, for specifically this uh, this type of 
uh, issues basically. So they, let's say because honestly, every day or every week, few technologies are presented to McGill University, and those McGill universities they have to somehow figure out if uh, first of all is a feasible is a, this technology is feasible, and second if that's a new technology or maybe it's not a new technology, maybe someone else in another university, in another industry, in another country, someone else has been already done it. So, you know, there's no point for McGill to investigate, to invest basically on that technology. So for that reason, few people are basically are doing some due diligence uh, and they are looking at uh, different patents, different uh, papers and different reports. And uh, those guys report to McGill to say that, okay, you know, this, this reported technology seems uh, novel. There is nothing close to this one or no, yeah, this technology has been already uh, patented and published, so there's nothing new in it. So these are the, these guys basically are submitting the report to McGill and uh, McGill University based on those reports, uh, make a decision on if they want to proceed or if they do not proceed with that uh, innovation. So this exactly happened in our case as well. Uh, and uh, McGill University did some sort of uh, patent searching. They, they looked at the, some prior arts to see if there are any, uh, if there are any novelty, basically novelty in this, uh, in our case. And they concluded that yes, uh, that's new stuff uh, and that's a new idea. And for that reason, they again, they agreed uh, to pay for the application. And they paid for a provisional patent application at that time? Exactly. I mean, since it's a bit risky for, I mean, I'm, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm talking uh, on behalf of McGill University now, but honestly, since, you know, again, lots of uh, professors and students submit lots of uh, ideas to them, and it's going to be very risky for them if they want to, I mean, first of all, invest in all of them, and second, if they want to uh, go to the nation five phase and then uh, apply for each individual uh, jurisdiction. So the strategy, I guess that's a strategy for most of the universities and uh, research in institutes that they start with a provisional application. They start with a provisional application, they protect it uh, for one year, 12 months. And the idea is that during that 12 months, uh, researchers, students and professors get more information, get more data, work on the economics to, you know, to evaluate the economics of that idea, to, 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 to validate the data, or perhaps they produce a prototype out of it, out of the technology. So basically that 12 months, uh, it gives us uh, and give all the researchers some time basically to get more data and validate the result. And exactly this is what happened in our case. So uh, McGill uh, submitted the provisional patent application and um, basically had 12 months to make the technology better, maybe modify it a bit, adjust it a bit, and uh, make a bigger samples, make a bigger products, and all of those things. And this was the tech transfer office that was engaged in all of this? That's true. I mean, uh, that's true. I mean, different universities uh, have different names for that office. So at McGill University, they call it the Office, office of Sponsored Research. But basically, the same, uh, the same uh, performance. Basically, this is what they do. Basically, so they are, uh, they are office of sponsor research. So they are trying to. This is a tech transfer. I mean, working with the IPs, innovation, and all of those things. Yes, same, same office. 
And did you find them to be helpful? I mean, were there difficulties? Maybe you could talk whatever you can share about the licensing agreement and that process, the negotiation, all of that, that whole experience. Uh, I would say that they were very useful and still they are useful to be honest. Uh, and uh, because again, honestly, when at least in my case, uh, when you are a PhD student, honestly, the last thing you are thinking of, at least when you start, is is uh, filing a patent application. Perhaps that's that's none of what that's none of the none of none of the task that you are assigned to, and this is not a thing that you want to do basically because you know you have you have to pass courses, you have to pass exams, you have to prepare the proposal, you have to defend the proposal, you have to write the thesis, you have to do the experiments and all of those things. So, I mean, uh, usually and most, in most cases, uh, the majority of graduate students, they do not do that the business uh, of, the, you know, I'm talking about the patent business and IP business. So it's, it was perhaps same for me. And for that reason, I didn't have that much of information on how the patent application works, how the patent protection means, and all of those things, basically. So uh, for that reason, uh, this office, I mean, McGill University, I mean, they were very helpful. They help us a lot. Uh, and, uh, and, and imagine that, as I mentioned, that uh, how Carbocrete started, started uh, with, uh, with me and my, my business partner, basically. And that business partner, Chris, was introduced by, by McGill University. So for that reason, I would say that they, were very, they have been very helpful uh, since the beginning. And so on that topic, when they introduced you to Chris, I mean, wh what was his, how was he presented to you? And, and, and it sounds like you, you two hit it off um, quite quickly and, 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 you know, developed a kind of co-founder bond. I mean, talk to us a bit about how that, the beginning of that all went down, if you can. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, he was, I mean, he was a successful entrepreneur basically. So he had experience in uh, growing the company companies and then, he, you know, he was, he was a great uh, business person and he had experience in business development and all of those things. Uh, in contrast, in my case, you know, uh, my main focus at the time, at least, was developing the technology. So, as a, I mean, again, at, at least at the time, you know, when you are doing your PhD, basically, you are uh, you are you are some sort of a scientist, and again, the last thing you are thinking of or you are working on is the business development or marketing or financial and all of those things. You are just trying to uh, make your uh, technology work. So let's say you are trying to uh, have some progress for on your thesis and on your experiments and on, on your uh, reports, basically. So uh, I, I had very good experience in concrete in our technology that I was working on and the technology that I have uh, developed. Uh, but perhaps I was not uh, very strong in, again, in marketing, uh, finances, and all of those things. So those, uh, those skills uh, were basically were missing at the time, basically. So it was a very, as I mentioned, I mean, we discussed in the past several minutes, few minutes that the technology looks very good, looked very promising, it had a great potential, but uh, that's not enough, basically, if you want to start a company or a startup, that's important for sure. The technology is very important. There is no question of that, but that's not enough uh, 
with itself. So you need uh, to have a strong team. And Chris basically had the other knowledge and other skills uh, that I missed at the time. So he was a great uh, uh, communicating person. He was a great uh, business person and he had lots of experience in uh, business development and all of those things. So that's why the, the bond basically started. So technically I was doing very well, I believe. And at the same time, Chris was very good uh, in the business part of the equation. So a, a good uh, collaboration, a good combination. That's why uh, we are here now, basically, after six years. And you, you guys applied for and did the, the Dobson Cup. Was Chris involved in that or that was before that? The Dobson Cup being the McGill's uh, business plan competition. Exactly. No, uh, as I mentioned, we started uh, the company in 2016, but uh, we started meeting each other from 2015. So it was in that period that we applied for that uh, Dobson Cup uh, program, basically. So he was involved uh, on that uh, program as well. And was that a rewarding program for you guys or was yeah. just... Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we ranked uh, second. We won the second runner-up as a runner-up. So we got some cash prize from McGill and from that program. And it was honestly, it was very good. Basically, it, it directed us and somehow it uh, forced us to prepare some sort of presentation. Imagine that we are talking about the first few weeks of starting, starting the company or starting thinking of starting a company. Basically. So it was at the very, very earliest stage. And uh, this type of uh, program like Dobson Cup basically help us to prepare stuff, help us to think more, help us to be more organized basically. And then, you know, we have to, you have to present something on the, on the market, on the market uh, value proposition and all of those things. So help us to shape those, those slides and those presentation and those uh, messaging. And was there other, can I ask what you did with the cash prize? Uh, yeah, I, well, to be honest, I don't remember that much, but, uh, we had to buy some stuff, some equipment. I believe we use part of it for the, uh, for the equipments because, uh, it was 2000. Yeah. So I guess we mostly, we used it for, uh, for buying equipments. Because at that point you were no longer working out of McGill's laboratory. You the company was formed and so any future R&D, larger sample sizes, things like that needed to happen um, on your own dime? Uh, not really. So after I graduated uh, uh, from McGill in 2014, I kept uh, working as a postdoc basically uh, with the same university, McGill University. So. Uh, I had a chance to use the lab. I had a chance to use the McGee's uh, equipments and uh, facilities basically for, for, for several months after I, I graduated as, as a postdoc basically. Um, so I was able to basically do some experiments, make bigger samples and all of those things. And was any of that baked into the agreement with McGill? Uh, I'm not going to give more details and talk about more details on that one, but definitely Carver Creed and McGill has some sort of uh, 
uh, I mean, we have some sort of agreements basically in place uh, that we discuss about all of, we have already discussed about the IPs and all of those things basically. So we have, we have a very good relationship with Megiddo. That's what I can say. Well, and you said you continue, they continue to be supportive and helpful. I mean, is there anything worth mentioning that they're actively doing that? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, honestly, just recently, for instance, you know, if, you know, because uh, let's say they are introducing and linking us to other researchers that are uh, linking us to other professors that are doing something that can be useful for us for carbocrete so basically they are making those links they are making those contacts and all of those things so I, that's why I, i'm saying that uh, these are helpful for us these are useful for us and still is happening basically and is there any other non-dilutive funding that you really prioritized at an early stage um, I know Canada has, has, has unique programs. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so Dobson Cup was the one that we participated. Uh, they are, I mean, not at the earliest age, but uh, there are other governmental program like IRAP, Industrial Research Assistant uh, Program, basically. So basically, this is non-dilutive. Uh, basically, they give some, the government of Canada gives some sort of grants or doing research and to optimize the process and basically, uh, you know, help for the for the for the product development. This is non-dilutive and uh, that's very useful. Uh, there are other uh, accelerator programs in uh, in Canada. Uh, we didn't use them that much, but again, it depends because um, in in our case. I believe uh, we did not need those type of accelerator programs because Chris was there basically here. He was a knowledgeable person. He was experienced. And uh, I believe, uh, you know, if we participated in those type of accelerator programs, we didn't get that much. Uh, that's, that's my personal belief at least. So we didn't, uh, we didn't uh, join but honestly if let's say if, let's say if you're a researcher if you are a new graduate and if you are not uh, experienced on business development marketing how to sell and all of those things and if you want to get some sort of experience and knowledge and some sort of information those type of accelerators are the best place to start with so you apply you get uh, accepted you go there and then you are uh, trained by skilled person by some person that have experience and basically you, you develop some sort of a skill and you develop some sort of uh, information which is useful. So I guess that's a very common route that uh, researchers or the guys who have some technologies that are taking that route, starting from the accelerator program and they built up on top of that basically. So they started with one accelerator Sometimes they get some cash, 5K, 10K, 20K, 50K. Uh, they get trained. They use that cash maybe to hire someone or to, I don't know, buy some equipment, something like that, or do some testing somewhere else. And after that accelerator, again, they perhaps they apply for another accelerator program, maybe more advanced accelerator program. Again, they may gain, get some more cash, uh, more trainings, and basically they, they keep going. That's a very, that's a very reasonable way to start a startup company. 
And something you said a little bit, uh, a, a little while back was you felt that the technology at a certain point was ready to be presented to industry. How early in the process did you start engaging with industry and showing the technology and maybe you can speak about that. It might be that it's more Chris's domain or whatever, but you know, I'm just curious. Uh, yeah, it started basically, I mean, um, it happened basically when we started Carbocrit. It did not happen uh, during my PhD program, but once we formed the company, and definitely the first thing, I mean, honestly, as a startup, you know, when you, have, when you, are, started, when you are starting a company, Definitely, you are going to do, do two things, basically. Uh, approaching investors and presenting your technology to the, to the industry, basically. Uh, this is exactly what we, we, we have done, basically, after formation of Carbocrit. So uh, we had, had good results. And then we said, that, OK, you know, that's the time to just go and knock the doors and uh, talk to the industry, talk to the experts, and talk to the people to, first of all, to see the feedback, see, basically taste the, taste the water, basically, to see uh, what they are talking about. Maybe, you know, maybe we, we, maybe at the time, let's say we knew something, we didn't know something which was important. Let's say, you know, internally, we, we, think, we think that, oh, everything is perfect, everything is nice. But then you present it to someone, some expert, some, someone who are in that industry for 30 years, then maybe they are saying something else, basically. So we wanted to see if that's the case or not. Fortunately, that was everything was okay. Everything was good. A lot of good feedbacks, lots of positive comments. Basically, we have received uh, from the industry. So uh, basically, yeah, it was after we formed the company that we approached uh, the industry. And did you always want to be? an entrepreneur or in business? Did, did you have designs on becoming a, a professor at some point? Yeah, my niche, honestly, well, if I want to talk about myself, when I started uh, at McGill, my goal and my ultimate goal was to become a professor somewhere. And that was the, the only reason and the main reason that I started the PhD, basically. So, because before I started the PhD, I had two master degrees, one in a structural one in material, basically, civil material. So, I mean, I, ha I have had enough, I guess, degree or knowledge to start working in the industry. But I said that, no, I just want to be a professor. I, just, I want to get involved in the academic uh, field. So for that reason, I started uh, my PhD program. But I didn't, honestly, I didn't think that I'm going to be become an entrepreneur. I'm, I didn't think that I'm going to start a company. No, none of, none of those things, basically. I just wanted to finish my degree, publish some, publish some uh, papers, conference paper, journal papers, uh, present some results in the conferences, and basically become a professor uh, in a university. That was my, my goal, that, that was my plan, basically. But again, in the middle of the program, it has been, uh, it has been, it has changed, basically. So uh, we noticed that, again, some, innovative stuff is happening there, some innovation is there, some new ideas are there, and then basically the plan has changed. 
I'd say it certainly has. I mean, it, it, it was just basically the momentum of everything was, it was more interesting than becoming a professor. Like you quickly lost that interest and, and were swept up in the, the momentum that is carbocrete. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, yes. I mean, honestly, again, um, because I, I, I saw the momentum, I saw the potential. I saw a huge, I mean, and imagine, I believe the impact that uh, carbocrete is going to have on the environment, on the planet, on the world, perhaps it's going to much bigger than if I just came and a professor, basically. I believe that's going to, I mean, um, my decision to start a company uh, is going to have, a, I guess, a better and more impact and influence uh, on the world, basically, compared if I just started to be a professor, basically. So for that reason, I believe that was a good decision. I believe that was a right decision that I made. And as, I, as you mentioned that basically, Max, the momentum was there as well. And, uh, and imagine that uh, that's a, the timing also is uh, very helpful. So if you look at any media, TV news, any media, basically social media, almost, almost every day, maybe I'm not ex exaggerating, but almost every day you see a news on global warming, on climate change, on CO2 footprint and all of those things. So it shows the potential, it shows the demand. It shows that it's something is needed now, basically to some, some technologies, some, some companies uh, are basically needed to solve uh, this, this problem and this challenge that everyone is talking about, again, every, almost every day. But if you go back to, I don't know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, that was not the case. Maybe 30, 40 years ago, no one talked about global warming, or at least in not that, uh, in, I mean, not in the, not the same context as we are talking now. So the timing of this also is very helpful, basically, and it's helped a lot, basically. So again, every, I mean, you, you look, look at the governments, they are, they are having a plan for carbon reduction uh, T 2030, T 2050, T 2040. So all governments try, try to impose some regulations and some laws and some targets, basically, for the carbon reduction. And uh, again, our company helps governments and uh, different either local governments or uh, federal governments or other countries, basically our, con our company helps those governments to meet that goal, basically to reduce the carbon footprint, uh, carbon footprint. Yeah, it's crucial. And, and you know, I, uh, the world is grateful to the, all the carbocrete of the world and, and what you're doing. If, if you had to give yourself some advice, um, can be anything, something you do differently, speaking to a failure, what would you tell yourself um, back in the early days, maybe? Uh, uh, I would say, honestly, maybe it's too cliche, but uh, definitely you need to work hard. And maybe I could have been working even harder. That's maybe that's a cliche, but I would say that that's not enough, basically. Uh, I would say still you need some sort of luck in your life and uh, you need a combination of both. If you are working hard 
hard, 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 but still, if you are not lucky enough, perhaps, uh, you don't get to the place that you would like to get. At the same time, the opposite also happens. If you are lucky and you are not working at all, then also you are not going to be successful uh, either. So I guess you need both factors, which is working hard, and also you need to be lucky as well in order to be, to be successful and in order to get uh, to some, some, some points. Uh, if I want to talk about what I have done differently, uh, if I want to go back, I would say uh, I would try to be more relaxed. I would try to put less pressure and less stress on myself, perhaps. This is what I would have done this year if I want to go back. And any advice to young scientists, grad students, entrepreneurs beyond working hard and, and trying to get lucky? Anything that else that stands out that you'd want to tell them? Uh, really, I mean, um, one, one, maybe one general advice, and not that I'm not in a position to give advice, but one general recommendation is that for the researchers, the young researchers, the young uh, graduates, uh, it's very important to work with a professor that uh, is respected in the industry and is, uh, has ideas and has knowledge, basically. Is very important. Even is I, my belief is even more important than the, the university itself. So let's say if you are a student and you want to start a graduate program, it's good to spend some time and doing some research on the on the professor that you are going to work with. Uh, because in my case, honestly, my professor helped me a lot, and then uh, definitely without him and without his support, I couldn't get uh, to this position that I, I'm now. Basically. Uh, he was a knowledgeable person, he helped me a lot. So I would say that, again, for the young researchers, they want to start, and uh, they have to think about, and they have to search more on who is going, who they are going to work with. And perhaps that, that, that decision is going to change their life. I mean, I'm talking about the research life and the academic life and professional life. That decision is going to change um, their life in that uh, respect, basically. So if they, if they are able to find the right supervisor and if they are able to get accepted in the program, that's going to be a good and very huge good start, basically. Well, that's great advice, Merdad. I think this is a good place to stop. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, my LinkedIn. Mehrdad Mautian, they can uh, find me on LinkedIn and if they have any question or any comments, uh, they can shoot me a message and I would be happy to, to help anyone. Excellent. Um, to all who are listening, visit bountiful.work to join our platform and get early access. Mehrdad, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Max. Nice talking with you. You have a good too. Day. Thank you. Thanks for listening. But now we need your help. We're building a community of scientists, students, entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and investors to commercialize meaningful technology and research. Join us at Bountiful.Work today to find opportunities and realize your power to save the world.